0: Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach is wasting the time of both the buyer and seller at every stage, especially when sellers are using shallow and outdated data. Your organization can overcome these challenges with technology that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights. That is linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash trial and get
1: started. Hey, everybody. Uh, we've got a great one today, you know, for a change. And I really mean it this time. Heather McGee, my all-time favorite guest, now on for her third time. You know, when I, I guest hosted. The Daily Show, I asked Heather to be one of my guests, and she knocked it out of the park, as she always does. And that show was the highest rated by any of their guest hosts, not because of Heather. Uh, it, it, you know, it was me. You know, when I, I first got to the Senate, the Great Recession had just begun. And the housing market, as you know, uh, collapsed, uh, hurting a lot of people. and Heather was the head of a group working on economic disparity issues. and I had a piece of legislation uh, that that group, Demos, uh, got behind, trying to address how the credit rating agencies had uh, given these AAA ratings to to junk. And Demos and Heather and I uh, started working on it together. So we got to know each other back then. And those of you who have listened to Heather's previous conversations here know that she has written one of, of the most insightful books in explicating the wealth gap between whites and blacks in this country. The average black family led by a college graduate has less net wealth than the average white family led by a high school dropout. The book, The Sum of Us, a, a runaway New York Times bestseller, the title comes from the premise that the whites at the top have always told whites at the bottom that whatever helps black people economically hurts them. And that, of course, turns out not to be true. So the title, "The Sum of Us," echoes the theme of one of my heroes, Paul Wellstone, who said, "We all do better when we all do better." Anyway, now "The Sum of Us" has been adapted; Heather adapted it for middle school students, uh, which I find very exciting. And of course, Heather has been learning quite a bit about American schools now, and has a lot of really important thoughts on book banning. "The Some of Us" hasn't been banned at least not that I know of, but this is happening all over the country, and it's pernicious, this book banning. Anyway, if you've heard Heather here before, I I know you'll want to listen, and if you haven't, this will be a real treat for you. Meanwhile, Republicans seem to be doubling down on abortion. Florida passed the law outlawing abortions after six weeks of conception. Of course, sometimes women don't know they're pregnant at six weeks. A bit of a problem, but, you know, who cares? That, of course, is uh, Ron DeSantis running for the Republican nomination. Most Republicans, I guess, are anti-choice, so that's a logical play if you're trying to get the Republican nomination. Now, it used to be a winner for Republicans in general elections because it was a single issue issue for a sizable number of Republicans, but not for pro-choice Democrats because pro-choice Democrats just always assumed that Roe would never be overturned. Then we had Dobbs. So now it is a single issue vote for pro-choice Democrats, women and men, maybe more women, but. For lots of young women and men, it's a a big, big issue, and it's a big issue now for pro-choice Republicans. This is a DeSantis play for the Republican nomination. He's lost ground to Trump lately. Before the indictment, DeSantis was within eight points of Trump, but now he trails by 28. That's that's mainly the indictment, I think, which a lot of Republicans consider kind of rinky-dink, and also, DeSantis has made a couple of mistakes calling the war in Ukraine a territorial dispute that is not a top securing interest for the United States. Uh, Trump is really no better on Ukraine. He says all you have to do is get Zelensky and Putin in a room and work it out. But mainly Republicans, especially, of course, the MAGA Republicans, have, have rallied around Trump. Now, this is what interests me. On last week's podcast with Harry Littman, we went through the panoply of possible indictments against Trump, and and there's a lot. The Mar-a-Lago documents, uh, that's gotten very bad for Trump. Georgia, January 6th, of course. Now the $200 million-plus that he raised by mail from supporters uh, to help him prove that the election was stolen. Uh, It looks like an indictment. Maybe coming there. There's the E. Jean Carroll rape trial uh, coming soon. Will they stick with Trump through all of these? Some will, but how? How many? I'm not the only one looking at this and thinking this way. Chris Christie, I'm sure. Uh, Tim Scott has announced an exploratory committee. I see a bigger field than we thought a while ago, which means this could be a very interesting cycle. Fox News is hosting the first debate. That'll be a a few months after they get dragged through the mud in the Dominion trial. I spoke with Jeremy Peters uh, from the New York Times the other day, and he'll be joining us in a couple weeks to report on that trial. Anyway, Fox is insisting that the candidates in the debate pledge to support the Republican nominee, which you'll remember Trump didn't do in 2016. Not only won't he make a pledge, this is my prediction. If Trump isn't the nominee, he will run as the third party. I guarantee it. You can imagine how pissed he will be at whoever does get the nomination. Can you imagine how much he will hate whoever the Republican nominee would be who beat him? I wish this wasn't so interesting. By that I mean ugly and scary, but it it is. Anyway, Here's something that's neither of those things, Heather McGee. Listen to Heather and you'll feel better because she talks about difficult subjects, but it's so rational and brilliant and knowledgeable and passionate that you'll feel better about everything. Now, we recorded this a couple weeks ago. In between time, we had the Mishigoths in Israel heat up and then the Trump indictments. So we did shows on those. So we start uh, with uh, the banking crisis, one of uh, Heather's areas of expertise, and then on to the rest of our discussion. This is truly a great one, you know, for a change.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
2: Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur
0: in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic.
1: Try gift mode on Etsy now. Some of us, I've been doing this, I guess, four years now. Some of us, my favorite book that I've done, you're my favorite guest. Said that. Many times, uh, and now the sum of us is a middle school book, that 's yeah. what we 're going to be talking about today, and I want to ask you all about that. I want to ask you what you've learned about middle school <laughs> and what you've learned about public education in uh, America mm. and uh, the book, of course, is that our economy is not a zero sum game that. Whites have been told by other whites that, uh, you know, that anything helps black people uh, economically hurts them and how that is just not true. That's the book, right? Yep. There's a little deja vu here because the first time we met, you were head of Demos, Mm
2: -hmm. a
1: a think tank, and a lot of what you guys studied was financial regulation, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a banking crisis. (laughs) Yes. A very funny banking (laughs) crisis. And I just want to get your your take on uh, how fast Silicon Valley Bank was uh, bailed out and how fast uh, black homeowners uh, Mm. were bailed out in 08.
2: Well, thanks for asking that, Al. You know, as you know, we met when you were on the banking committee. When we I wasn't were on the, banking, I wasn't. You on weren't that. on the banking committee. That's right. You were the most influential person off of the banking committee.
1: Nevertheless, yes, we 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 met about that. But no, I was on a banking. I don't know That's that true. much about banking, so I want to ask you about it because you <laughs> okay. know about banking. You really I, do. I
2: found myself uh, as the co-chair of the task force on systemic risk and resolution authority, basically. How do we make sure that the banks don't fail, and if they do, that taxpayers aren't on the hook within this coalition called Americans for Financial Reform, the sort of pro-reform David to the Wall Street Goliath in the wake of the financial crisis? And what I learned there was a lot of things, and really the lasting thing I learned was that The power of the financial industry, which has been for most of my lifetime, the biggest spender in politics in Washington, is just tremendous. And so in this window, when Wall Street greed and racism, as I outline in the book, and I have a whole chapter dedicated to the financial crisis and how Black homeowners were the canaries in the coal mine, getting targeted with predatory mortgages first and being ignored until Everybody was on the hook and losing out in the peak of the, the mortgage crisis. Wall Street greed had cost the U.S. economy 8 million jobs, tens of trillions of dollars in lost wealth. And at that moment, when they were sort of on their knees, we were able to win some really common sense regulations. One of those rules was that the biggest Wall Street banks, the ones that would come with their hat in hand again if they ever failed. They needed to be under tighter supervision. They were systemically important financial institutions, and they needed to have more cash and liquidity and capital reserves and all of that. And we won. And we made that threshold $50 billion, which is a heck of a lot of money. And it was, you know, all the most important, biggest banks. And then under Trump, you know, Republicans and with a few Democrats were able to listen to bank CEOs like the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, actually, uh, and lots of other sort of what they call mid-size banks who said, oh, these burdens of having to carry all this extra cash and save for the future and be more prudent, they're just killing us, killing us. And they, they won, right? The memories had faded. We had a Republican in the White House and they were able to get themselves a loophole so that they did not have to have the same safeguards and cash on hand.
1: This was 18. So they were still in the majority in both
2: houses. This is 2018. That's right. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Not five years later. We have one of those, two of those banks, first Silicon Valley bank and then signature bank, which were the exact banks that were lobbying to get out from under the regulations that were basically just, you know, safeguards. Now being caught without enough capital reserves, without enough liquidity, and having to come and ask for a bailout. The lesson for me in this is that actually regulations work, safeguards are smart. This bank was exactly the kind of bank that should have always been under that extra level of scrutiny, and the reason why it failed was that it took a huge outsized risk in one type of security, in one type of bond?
1: Well, what it did was it bought, bought treasury bonds, right?
2: Yeah, long-term ones.
1: Long-term treasury bonds at a point when interest rates were low and they were getting good yield on the bonds, but not for long-term because we have inflation and then, of course, the Fed raised Rates and-, and
2: even though it did look like a good bet, you don't put $117 billion of your $211 billion in asset in one type of security. You just don't do that. They were way, way, way concentrated in one type of security.
1: It is insane.
2: It's insane. It makes no sense. And I would like to think that if there were regular stress tests, if there was the capital and liquidity requirements, A, somebody and one of the regulators would have said you're overbalanced here and then b they would have been required to have enough cash on hand to be able to deal with what ended up happening with the bank run
1: so w- when did they realize this cuz it's insane they held on to this stuff but they had to i guess yeah. how do you how do you sell these treasuries when they're getting a smaller yield than inflation
2: yeah i mean it it is a problem and right now the bailout actually consists of the U.S. government buying those bonds from them. And so the U.S. government can either hold them until they mature for 20 years, basically at a loss, or find some up, sell them now at a loss. I mean, basically, it's not a straight bailout in the way that folks sort of imagine, but it is getting those It is. It sounds like a bailout to me. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. It's getting. It's taking those investments out in order to make the people who kept their money in those accounts in excess of the FDIC insurance, the two hundred fifty thousand dollars, make them whole. And it and it does matter. I mean, the thing is, like, this is why we need a well regulated system because some people are saying, you know, oh, just let the rich startups and tech companies, you know, let them burn, right? Let them go, but. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank was also a really heavily uh, banking in climate tech. right? It's so a lot of like community solar and a lot of the clean energy economy that our entire planet desperately needs to succeed, had a lot of their funding in these banks and was invested in by, these, by this bank. And so, you know, we're interrelated, right? I mean, I, I do believe that it's important for there to be trust in the financial system, But the way that trust is earned and the way that failures are prevented is by being willing to comply with some regulations and safeguards.
1: Yeah. Is this going to go south, this thing, this this banking crisis, by the way?
2: You know, I will say that when I was working on financial regulation in the mid-2000s, I knew that there was a housing bubble. I knew that the subprime mortgage industry was a ticking time bomb. I saw it because I saw the homeowners, the whole neighborhoods that had lost everything from a financial instrument that was quickly spreading all across the country out of black and brown neighborhoods into white neighborhoods and becoming an important part of most sophisticated financial instruments. I don't know. I do not have that same feeling today. I do not have the same feeling that there's something fundamentally rotten at the center of the financial industry today.
1: Good. We'll leave it there. phew (laughs) Uh, so okay so the book is out now the some of us is now a middle school book what does that mean what does that mean
2: so one of the most common things that people said when i was going around the country talking to folks about the grown-up book as i now refer to it in my house um was this should have been required reading i wish i knew this stuff earlier and so I started thinking, well, well, maybe we could do what's been done increasingly these days with books that do well in an adult version, which is, you know, have a young adult publisher and editor take a chop at it for younger people. And honestly, Al, I thought that it was going to be, you know, a little bit of rewriting, maybe bring some more kind of stories and characters, dumb down the language a little bit. I know you asked me to illustrate it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As I was talking to librarians and school teachers and this little focus group that I put together of middle schoolers, they were like, just don't dumb it down. It needs to be shorter for kids to actually get through it. And so honestly, it's just, it's about a third shorter. It's still got the facts and figures and the history. It's still got the stories of real people that have been so important to making the book kind of different than most books about the economy and racism. And it's just as hard hitting a message about slavery, about economic and racial segregation. One of the facts
1: or one of the things that I did not know that I learned from the book and I learned stuff like this all like all throughout the book was that it was the federal government that that invented redlining. That was during the New Deal Yep, and it was the FDIC rule. So ex- explain that, and that's something that I didn't know. Um, you know, and I was on the banking committee. Oh no, 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 I wasn't. <laughs> anyway, <so. laughs>
2: all this misinformation. It was the homeowners uh, loan corporation that was set up by FDR to rescue homeownership in the depression, and then carried on in the FHA, the Federal Housing Authority. Basically, you know, the New Deal government said we're going to do this massive commitment to housing in America that there should be affordable housing for workers, there should be new developments and sub-developments, and that there should be this thing, this this mortgage that will be widely available, low down payment, and it'll be subsidized and it'll be insured and backstopped, and we will create something really unprecedented, which was the idea of mass home ownership by working class people. And yet, the progressive federal government under FDR based all of that policy on the never substantiated assumption that Black people would be too much of a credit risk. And so they sent out surveyors to all of the biggest metro areas in the country and surveyed the neighborhoods to the block level for their racial and ethnic character and designated areas with a high Negro concentration to be hazardous and put red lines around it saying, do not lend in these areas. You would not, as a private lender, Get any of the federal support or backstop or insurance if you lent in these areas, and so basically you had whole swaths of the country because black people lived there cut out from the financial engine of the twentieth century, which was home
1: finance, ownership. Which
2: was home ownership and small business loaning. What ended up happening is that people had black people like my great grandmother Flossie McGee had to buy her property from a loan shark and pay terrible interest rates and not have any recourse. If she ever missed a payment, she would lose the whole thing. And thank God she never did. But I mean, she was a domestic worker and, and she was able to do that, but it also meant that you know whole communities would have a hard time keeping up their properties and investing in them. You, know, you couldn't get a loan. It made for financial fragility and uh, you know twenty thirty percentage point lower home ownership rate for Black families, and you still see that the impact of that today. You see it oh, in absolutely. Our, you know,
1: and and I brought this up last time we we talked, which is um, Spotlight, which is the Boston Globe investigative uh, wing did this uh, survey of all the Greater Boston area and see the net worth of white families and of Black families. And the net worth of uh, white families is around $250,000. And the net worth of black families, and this is at the end of the Great Recession, was like zero, was like $12 mm-hmm. or something like that. And it's all home ownership.
2: Yep. It's all home ownership. And if you think about all the other things that are tied to home ownership, and we talk about this when I'm in middle school and high schools and libraries right now for the book tour for the young version of The Son of Us, what's tied to home ownership? Property taxes, school funding. Right. That's how you begin to see this, you know, this massive disparity in in how our schools are funded between majority black, majority white, majority of color districts, rich and poor. And it's it it becomes even more unconscionable when you realize that today's young people are literally paying in unequal schooling resources for the explicitly racist decisions of the 20th century that we've never had a reckoning about. There's never been any reparations for redlining, right? In fact, the opposite happened with the financial crisis and the systematic discrimination in formerly redlined areas by financial companies that, you know, were later, they got their comeuppance because... You know, you ignore the canary, you get poisoned, right? And yet those Black communities have never been made whole.
1: We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be right back with Heather McGee.
0: Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jura, Confluence and Loom
1: We're back with my favorite guest, Heather McGee. Since you have a book that's uh, going to middle schools, you, mu- you must be learning a lot about our education system and the disparities in schools.
2: You know, it's been really interesting. I just came this morning before sitting down to talk with you, Al, from my son's school here in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn beautiful boy
1: he is a beautiful boy boy. (laughs) i've seen pictures of this kid and i i know you say that to every parent uh but here i am this kid is beautiful never mind keep going keep going thank
2: you inside and out inside and out i really do believe it um so i talked to i talked to the fifth graders in his school and it's a neighborhood school public school in uh, clinton hill bedside and, you know, it's about 75% Black, probably, I don't know, maybe 15% White. And I've also gone to schools. I, last week, I was in an all white high school in, you know, the very wealthy part of the mainline sort of suburbs of Philadelphia. I was at a Quaker school, I was at a New England day school in Connecticut. And a few things really stuck out to me. One, there is quality education happening in all kinds of schools. And I think that sometimes, you know, particularly on the left, we're so focused on the inequities that we can sort of cast a, a big net of underachievement and all of that around brown and black schools. But my kids, just public school neighborhood, mostly black school is one of the top 5% test scoring schools in the state of New York. And so I think it's really important to remember that so it doesn't make us feel that poor kids can't learn, that black and brown kids can't learn, and that there can't be excellence even in schools.
1: Okay, but let me ask you, why? Why is the school so good?
2: I think it's got a great principal. I think it's got a super involved. That
1: matters. That matters.
2: Totally matters. um, Who recruits great faculty and keeps them there and supports them. And, you know, it's it's like a well-functioning organization. Right. And I just think. It's become a school with a lot of pride and a lot of um, investment of time and resources and talent from the sort of, you know, middle class black community here in the heart of Brooklyn.
1: Is that important, too, that there's a large middle class black population there? I
2: I think so. I think it means education. It means time. Right. If you, you're a middle class person, you have a little, you know, of course, everybody feels completely stressed, but you have a little. I was able to go <laughs> right at 930 and there were five other parents this morning who had enough of a professional job that they weren't getting docked hourly pay to come and volunteer and be a part of their kid's school those parents are more likely to have paid family leave and be able to take care of their children and to be able to escape the stress of poverty, which we know is is really challenging for development of children. And I say that because the $250 a month child tax credit actually in- Oh, let's in, talk
1: about that. In
2: studies helped the brain development of the children in families that got That money, as opposed to a control group that got none, you know. I mean, this is this stuff is really important, and it's about family stress. So I think it's about the health of the community, and I think it's about the the resources, and not just money, but also time that parents and the community are able to to pour into the school.
1: You know, I'm so thankful to you that you agreed to do the Daily Show when I do that, and I got now. I just wish like I I could say the Daily Show. Can we just do Heather? (laughs) because <laughs> it would be so much better okay what we're
2: uh, gonna have fun we're gonna have a lot of fun on the daily show i'm so excited for you
1: well, we got to get this information out, which isn't always fun. But anyway, uh, so in fact, what do we want to talk about uh, beside the book? Uh, well, uh, we what we should do is do what we're doing here and talk about how the book dovetails with having this book out in middle schools, which is what well, we're doing listen, this, right now. Be, I'm saying what we're doing. You don't usually do that on a podcast.
2: <laughs> let's be very clear. This book. I went to Pennsylvania. Let's see. I went to Connecticut, New York. Uh, I was in Texas last week, but I didn't do a school. I did a bookstore. Technically speaking, some crank could challenge this book in Florida and 10 other states and say that it should be a banned book because it talks about systemic racism.
1: Boy, you know what? It's amazing. You mentioned Florida. It's kind of amazing the governor hasn't banned this or tried to.
2: You know, what's interesting is here's the, the sort of nefarious brilliance of what is being done is that the governor didn't put out a list of banned books. The governor and the right wing state legislature said you can't teach any books or these books can be challenged if they make a student feel uncomfortable because of their race you know, if they talk about systemic racism, et cetera. Right. And so what they did, though, was they empowered cranks to challenge those books.
1: Fortunately, very few of those in (laughs) In Florida. Florida.
2: Very few older people with time on their hands who are listening to Fox News all the time in the state of Florida. And so what that's smart organizing, right, because it, it decentralizes it. It creates a sort of army of people who can make life Hell for librarians in this school, that school, that school. It creates a sort of chaos of small cuts that I think ultimately what this strategy is around the book banning is something to put public schools in further crisis in order to ultimately drain the public pool of public education in America, right? The, the right wing's goal has always been school privatization, get that huge pot of taxpayer money, put it in a for-profit system, and break the backs of one of the biggest, most sophisticated unions, the teachers' unions. And while you're at it, make sure that young people are not learning to be citizens and live in a multiracial democracy, but rather you know, can be in sort of Christian academies.
1: Well, you are a conspiracy theorist. I just thought (laughs) I just thought it was just a racist idea. Let's not teach that. Let's not make a kid feel uncomfortable. Let teachers have to say, you know, for the first, uh, you know, uh, 250 years in our country, there were a group of people had to work uh, for free. Uh, I don't, and, uh, no, no, Kyle, uh, it's not like your, your unpaid, uh, internship at your dad's law firm. It was very unpleasant work.
2: Well, that's the thing. My thesis throughout the book is that racism is ultimately a justification for greed. And so you do Mm. have to look at what is the economic goal behind The lie of racial caste and the lie of racial subjugation, whether it was to create the most profitable economic system for lazy people in the history of the world, which was chattel slavery, or today to privatize public schools and to scare white parents away from public schools and politically the Democratic Party. There's always a financial rationale.
1: Well, yeah, that's the message of the book, which is that white, wealthy whites, especially the upper class whites, have told white working people that anything that helps black people hurts them.
2: That's right. But the good news is, Al, we oh, have. Good, good, good. good,
1: yeah. <laughs> good, good, good. I,
2: I mean, this is a sophisticated book, right? It talks about the financial crisis. It talks about the history of economic slavery. It talks about you know social yeah, science and zero sum theory. But you understood it, fifth graders totally were with me this morning 6th 7th 8th graders the questions they are asking are so wonderful and sophisticated i
1: want to i want to hear about that tell tell me what these kids are asking when they read the or or when you're presenting about it what are these kids getting in other words and what are the questions they're asking and cuz this is sophisticated stuff but one you you are a very clear explainer of stuff both in the book and and when you're presenting to the kids, but tell me what they're asking and what they get.
2: So I tell them the story of a 13-year-old boy named Tommy Cummings, who was a black boy in Baltimore in 1953 who had a crew of friends. He was black, he had another black friend, and then there were two white boys and they were this inseparable crew. They get that. And then I tell them it was hot in the summer and there were all these pools, but they couldn't swim together in any of the pools why, and they're like, "Oh, because segregation right they're they're staying with me, right? They've got this It's nineteen fifty three They know that there was something called segregation, and I asked them what they would do if they were Tommy, and there was no public pool where all the four boys could swim together, and finally, they usually realize that they have to go swim in a river or a lake, and then I tell them that they did that, but that Tommy drowned because it is much more dangerous to swim in a river than it is to swim in a public swimming pool with a lifeguard. You know, they're shocked by this. And then I tell them that the family agitated and marched and was able to win integration of all the public pools so that nobody like Tommy would have to give their life just to swim with all their friends, no matter what color of their skin. And they kind of, you know, they're thrilled. And then I tell them. That wasn't true. No, it was true. Oh. Oh. oh, but that in response, <laughs> all over the country, towns drained their public pools rather than integrate. Oh, that's them.
1: right. That's right. And
2: they are shocked, and they yep. get it immediately. Right? They say, "Well, everybody lost out then." Racism is bad for everybody, and then they mm-hmm. ask me questions like, "Who told white people that black people were bad?" Great question, right? Why did they tell? Why did those white people, right? Who first came up with the idea that Black people were bad? So I tell them about the plantation owners and I tell them about racism being an excuse, a justification for greed. We talk about poverty and inequality. And I ask them what they think the minimum wage is, and they say fifteen dollars an hour, and I say it's seven twenty-five, right? And and they're shocked because they didn't realize that, you know, almost half of the states still have a seven twenty-five minimum wage. Well, they Brooklyn's me-
1: expensive, so that's justified in Brooklyn. So I'm gonna to have to argue with you here.
2: Nowhere in the I'm country- arguing with Heather
1: <laughs> McGee here, explaining why the minimum wage should be seven fifty and
2: in tuscaloosa nowhere in the country can a worker afford an apartment for their family on minimum wage right so right that's why they
1: have to work uh, more than 40 hours a week and that the work ethic is good and why both mom and dad should both be working that time even if there is a single parent
2: that's there. right okay so if I'm they being, ask questions I'm to be a
1: right-wing uh, talk show host here for
2: you are you are you're very I good i, I do
1: for about 10 seconds <laughs>
2: Your logic fell apart immediately. <laughs> good. Because suddenly cause suddenly <laughs> there, there was a kid at home alone watching TV. And what's wrong with that? See,
1: I'm pretty good at this. Shit. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Keep going.
2: They ask questions like, why is it that uh, I tell the story of minimum wage workers organizing to try to win $15 an hour? And they s- ask questions like, Why is it that Bridget, one of the characters I talk about, a real person I interview in the book, why did she believe that immigrants were taking her jobs? Who told her that? They ask questions like- Dr. Carlson. Exactly, right? So I get to talk about who is selling these stories for their own profit, right? What what does somebody gain by getting a white worker to blame their black or brown neighbor instead of blaming the boss?
1: Or an immigrant, yeah.
2: Exactly. And so they really get it. They really understand the metaphor of the drained pool. You know, I say, the most important things in life, can we really fix them on their own? And they say, no. And I said, what's an example of something that you can do on your own, but it doesn't really solve the problem? This morning, kid shoots up his hand. and says, recycling. It's not going to stop global climate change. I was like, exactly, right? So they really get it. They really get, you know, the main message of the book is about collective action. And then some of them have been following the stories around book bans and, you know, books being taken off the shelves in libraries. And they're just furious. They're just outraged. They think that grownups who are trying to stop them from reading books are evil. I mean, they just think I've been told all my life that that's what I'm supposed to do. And then here are these people trying to take the books out of classrooms and off the library shelves.
1: And this is a real project of today's right wing.
2: Absolutely. And I want to say it's not popular. Like, this is actually really important. I think because our media ecosystem is what it is, you have, you know, the usually about seven out of 10 of the top, you know, most shared sites and stuff on Facebook are right wing. You have Fox News often being the highest cable rated network, all of that. And then you have the rest of us. Sort of rubbernecking and looking at the car crash that is all of this crazy antisocial authoritarian behavior. And it feels like, oh my God, the right is winning. Book bans are sweeping the nation. We must be 50 50 on this issue. Wrong. 88% of Americans think we have to teach all of our history, the good and the bad. A bunch of librarians did a a big survey and found that only 18% of voters support. Banning books that focus on race, 18%, right? In Florida, the book bans are unpopular with two thirds of voters, right? So we've really got to make sure that we have the moral high ground about this. Unsurprisingly, the idea of banning books strikes most Americans as fundamentally un American and suspect, right? They're suspicious of people who want to stop us from learning about ourselves.
1: Yeah, you wonder <laughs> when when I see DeSantis doing what he's doing. I wonder if he is just saying, okay, I just got to get MA- the maga people. I just got to be acceptable to the maga people so I can get this nomination. I I'm not saying he's doing that and then again, and then I'm going to move to the left and <laughs> you know, but yeah. there's God damn, this is uh, pretty evil stuff uh, that I'm I'm seeing coming out of him.
2: It really is the takeover of of new college, uh the attack on academic freedom and what's so Wild about it is remember when the you know New York Times very serious people were wringing their hands about cancel culture on college campuses. The right wing is now literally canceling an entire school right is 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 taking over a public college in Florida trying to end tenure, creating uh, putting some ideological partisan hacks in the leadership you know, dissolving all the student clubs that have to do with race or identity, right? Like, and this is actually the government doing this, right? A bunch of young people protesting a speaker is not a violation of speech, right? The First Amendment protects people from infringements by the government, right? From state power, stopping people from speaking. And that's exactly what the right wing is doing right now, using the power of the state to try to stifle free expression. And it's just an amazing example of projection. And still we have quote unquote very serious people in the New York Times editorials, publishing articles from young Republicans saying that college campuses are, are too liberal. And, and what that does is give moral cover and false equivalence to the actual authoritarian like campaign that's happening right now against higher education. And you got to wonder why, right? Like, what's this all about, right? I talked about how at the K through 12 level, I think it's fundamentally about school privatization and, and that big pot of gold that is taxpayer money and being able to privatize schools and create Christian academies and for-profit schools.
1: And yeah, for-profit charter schools and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, all
2: of that, right? And then the higher education conversation, you know, it was about 15 years ago that the right wing really began to turn against college. And turn against the university.
1: When did when what date did you give it?
2: It was about fifteen years ago in our politics. It was you know around the sort of sorting around the Obama era, and I I think it was earlier. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it was the '60s in some ways. Yeah.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think it was Reagan in California kind of ran against Berkeley. Yeah. So a lot of it was Vietnam. And but a lot of it was you remember they had free tuition at all their colleges.
2: That's right. That's right. And then
1: they got rid of that. And, And I
2: write about that in the book about how that's drain pool politics as well. But as people become more educated and learn more about our society and have their critical thinking skills developed, they tend to become more tolerant, more open-minded, and yes, more liberal. And so ultimately, it is not in the right-wing self-interest electorally to have a highly educated populace. It's why they begin to be against refunding public college to make it debt-free, against student loan debt cancellation
1: i love the poorly educated right. didn't trump say that i yeah. love the poorly educated that's right well jesus loved the poorly educated
2: yeah. jesus really loved them he washed their feet exactly
1: oh yeah trump's never done that
2: lord <laughs> <laughs> oh what a crazy image
1: yeah well stormy daniels maybe she was poor at the time and he washed her feet oh stop it al (laughs) take that out peter (laughs) now keep it in because i got a good laugh (laughs) that's all i care about as you know oh boy so the book is doing this is middle schools and you want and and where is it being part of the curriculum now
2: The middle school version, middle school and high school version just came out two weeks ago, and so it hasn't really made it into curriculums yet. Although today at my son's school, I thought I was just going to be talking to them about it, but the whole front row was fifth graders who had already bought it and were, you know, a third of the way in. It's only been out for two weeks. So that is the goal ultimately. And listen, I believe in radical empathy, and I can understand if I was a white middle-aged person and... Much of the racial history in the book and the ideas of anti-racism were new to me. I would feel some kind of way about my kid coming home with all this information that I didn't have and thinking critically about the jokes my family makes over the dinner table and the legacy of inherited wealth that my family had that was you know, subsidized by the government that I didn't realize was subsidized by the government and you know, all of this stuff, right? And so... I do think that there is a way in which I hope a book like mine both opens people's eyes of all races and offers a unifying message to say that racism, it's really not a zero sum. It's not us versus them. And it's in all of our interests to fight against it. There's a lot of false fear about teaching about racism, but there is, I think, some genuine fear among some people that reading about racism further divides young people. And I, my, my book is a unifying one and a hopeful one. And It so is. I hope it doesn't get banned.
1: <laughs> well, your book says we all do better when we all do better. That's right. And that dividing us is, I think you had some statistic in your book about McKinsey Uh, saying that what it costs us to pit each other against each other.
2: That's right. McKinsey uh, did a study about the racial wealth divide. The bigger number was even from Citigroup, which found that the black-white economic divide in jobs and businesses and wealth has cost the U.S. economy $16 trillion over the last 20 years. It's basically saying that if... Black families had the same level of income, wealth, business starts, all of that, that it would be so productive for the economy that the economy would be $16 trillion richer. That having, as I, you know, use the metaphor to explain it, right, if we don't have all of our players on the field scoring points for our team, if we have too many of our players with potential sideline due to debt, discrimination, disadvantage, we're not going to score enough points. But the zero-sum lie tells us that we're not all on the same team. And so you've got people rooting against their fellow teammates, their fellow Americans, being resentful that Black people might what? That Black take people from t- them. might take from them. That that Black people, that Black young graduates might receive a $20,000 student loan debt cancellation from the Biden administration. And they have this zero-sum arguments that we even heard in the Supreme Court hearing, where one of the Supreme Court justices said, well, why should a small business owner who started a lawn care company be disadvantaged, you know, as opposed to a student borrower? And, you know, first of all, if your small business fails, you can discharge your debt in bankruptcy, which student loans are not eligible for. Ooh. Second of all, uh, we had, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in PPP loans for businesses, uh, which, you know, individual student loan borrowers were not able to get. And so, you know, it's false on its face. But then think about it. What does a lawn care small business owner really want?
1: Wants people who want their lawns cared for?
2: Yes. Wants people who can buy homes and have some (laughs) extra money to pay somebody to mow their damn lawn. And what is, what, what is the number one reason why young people are not buying homes today?
1: Uh, because they're in debt. Exactly. And then they can't buy a home with a lawn.
2: So, you know, it's this false idea that if, if one group gets something, that it has to come at the expense of the other group. And that's not actually the way the economy works.
1: It'd be funny if lawn care people were like very much like, we've got to preserve water. And we have to do it smart. Otherwise, people won't, in, in the future, they won't be able to have lawns. Yeah, right. <laughs> that would be a very funny uh, interest group. <laughs> Heather, thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me on, Al.
1: It's, it's always, uh, you're always so great. And uh, see you soon.
2: All righty. See you soon.
1: Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week.
0: If you like the Al Franken podcast, you can listen to all episodes ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Summer is here and adventures await. Wondery and Tinkercast are teaming up to bring you a summer of wow with new episodes of your favorite podcasts. Go on an epic adventure with Portuga the Pirate as she takes a road-tripping adventure across the country on little stories everywhere. Immerse yourself in the life of someone amazing and listen closely for clues to guess who this person is on whose amazing life. Listen to Wow in the World to discover something new about science, technology, and innovation and the world around us. This summer, bring your imagination out into the world and find your wow. Visit wondery.com slash summer of wow to find new episodes of your favorite shows and to download scavenger hunts for the entire family
1: how much do you really know about black history like really really know Wondery's new podcast Black History For Real weaves black history's most overlooked figures back into their rightful place in culture and the world at large listen to Black History For Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts